0: Hi, this is Larry Mantle, host of Airtalk on KPCC. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a daily segment on Airtalk devoted to the latest information about COVID-19. kpecc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. Joining us, Dr. Kimberly Schreiner from Onington Hospital in Pasadena, where she's Director of Infectious Disease, and we're so pleased to have her with us every week on the program. Dr. Schreiner, a very good Monday to you.
1: And and to you, Larry, as well.
0: We have hit the 800,000, at least, Americans who have died of of COVID-19 at this point. Thankfully, we have seen a slowing of that death rate as vaccines have kicked in and more effective treatment for COVID-19 has happened. But your reflection, first of all, on on reaching that extraordinary number, Dr. Schreiner?
1: It's just such a tragedy, uh, Larry. I mean, I think that... um, you know we're we're still in the middle of this. everybody wants it to be over, myself included, but it's not. The virus is not done with us. And although we have very important tools to help control this, um you know we can't forget the people that have already perished from this virus and will continue to do so. And it's so dramatically impacted our uh, older population in the United States. It's really, a very disturbing statistic, but it continues and we just have to keep dealing with it.
0: It's hard for me to believe it's now been a year since the introduction of COVID-19 vaccination. So obviously millions of Americans have gotten vaccinated, but it does seem that we have stalled at this point on getting people vaccinated. Your your thoughts on, you know, what what does that mean for us now?
1: Well, it means uh, more mortality, certainly more mor- morbidity, more pressure on the hospitals, uh, more stress for our healthcare workers that are trying to deal with this, and you can see that across the country, if not across the world. Um, you know, this is a very, very challenging virus. Uh, I, you know, I think I've said this before, but uh, this really is shaping up to be the pandemic of the millennium. Um, it may not be the only pandemic of this of the millennium, but it certainly is really probably a more significant event in some ways. Uh, than the 1918 pandemic. Really? Claimed 15 million million lives. And I I say that for a couple of reasons. The first is that um, in 1918, they had no tools. They only had masking and social distancing. They had no vaccines. They had no antivirals. They had no significant hospitalization capabilities. Uh, And so that virus just sort of ripped around the world and, and caused many, many, many deaths. But now we have, you know, pretty significant numbers. You know, yes, We have a 6 million global mortality, but that number is probably a gross underestimate. And I think that um, this virus is proving to be very, very challenging. And, you know, think of the tools we have. We have very effective vaccines. Uh, We have some antivirals that work pretty well. We have some good ones that are coming on the horizon. We know what to do to protect ourselves. We've, you know, communities have been pretty strict in trying to do that. And sometimes, you know, with not a lot of, uh, you know, people don't like doing it, but and yet we're still in this situation. And I think that just speaks to the ferocity of this virus and uh, how different it is, frankly, than the H1N1 that uh, happened during the 1918 pandemic.
0: With that 1918 flu that uh, has historically been dubbed the Spanish flu, even though it's not believed to have originated there, um, what, um, what happened to it?
1: Well, it it became, you know, it spread around the world very quickly. Now, remember, things were very different in 1918. There were there were things that were happening where populations were mixing. It was the end of the First World War. And so soldiers were coming home from Europe. And you're absolutely right, Larry. As a matter of fact, the the virus probably started in the United States, not in Spain. Um, but it traveled around the world quickly for that time. You know, we globally now, we are so integrated and so able to move around the planet quickly, much in shorter periods of time than it than the incubation period for viruses. And that's why now in our age of jet travel and going off to exotic places and interacting with uh, creatures perhaps that we don't normally interact with in, in um, previously isolated natural areas, that allows these kind of viruses to spread even faster. Uh, the 1918 one kind of finally just got to the point where it couldn't go anyplace and um, it caused so much disease. And uh, it became sort of part of the natural community of, of influenza viruses, and we still have it today. We we vaccinate for H1N1, and that was the first time that it appeared was in 1918. We didn't know that for years. Uh, they went back and found some samples from that time period and tested it for the virus, and indeed it was an H1N1 influenza variant. So, uh, so it fe- eventually became kind of what we say endemic in the population. We know it's seasonal. It happens. It still causes a lot of disease. We had an H1N1 outbreak in 2009. So it's still around, of course, but it is not nearly the pathogen that it was at the time it first emerged.
0: Dr. Kimberly Schreiner of Huntington Hospital in Pasadena, infectious disease specialist joining us. And you can ask her questions, of course, says whenever we have our medical experts with us each day. It's also a podcast now, COVID in L.A. You can subscribe to it and then you've got it every day, whether you hear it on the live air talk broadcast on KPCC or not. COVID in L.A., available wherever you get your podcasts and audio or at kpecc.org. You can also get it there on our website. Uh, you can email us at atcomments at kpecc.org. Please include location and first name. You can also tweet at Airtalk. Again, please include in your tweet your location, along with your Twitter handle, and you can call us at eight six six eight nine three five seven two two. 893 Given that we have stalled, it appears, on vaccines and just, you know, very incremental kinds of increases, is there any sort of a strategy that you think could be employed to get significantly more people to be willing to be vaccinated?
1: There are several strategies. I think the strategy of blaming people or arguing with people or trying to convince people and sort of dismissing their reasons for not getting vaccinated don't work anymore, um, you know, for those individuals that that were afraid and have seen what this can do, and, and fear was sort of driving it, that will still get a few people, especially with uh, the new variant Omicron circulating. Um, but I think that at this point we have to engage people, and we have to have other strategies, as you've said. And I think uh, that's where oral therapy may play a role. Uh, very important development with uh, with some new drugs, probably not the, the sort of the first generation, if you will, of effective antivirals. Not perfect, have some problems, but uh, but for a pretty good go for the first start of the things, and engaging people in a different way and saying, okay, if you don't want to get a vaccine, then if you get COVID, you need to contact your primary care doctor right away, and they may be able to provide you with an oral medication. Hopefully, this will happen in a few weeks when they get EUA approval, um, and that's sort of one technique. Um, you know, I think that uh, as also, and as this moves through and becomes part of our normal life, eventually people sort of go, okay, well, now I just have to I go, I need to get a vaccine, I got to do that. So there's a certain population that eventually it just sort of becomes, this is what I need to do because it's normal to do this. It wasn't normal to get a COVID vaccine a year ago. And perhaps for some individuals that wanted to wait a little bit and see, make sure that people did okay after they got vaccinated, they should be feeling pretty confident now that they're very, very, very safe vaccines. And uh, we're not seeing any severe side effects with them, you know, with the exception maybe of j and J a a little bit, but those are even very uncommon. So that might be reassuring for some people. And there's just some people, Larry, that are never going to get it, and they will either get infected or they will die from the virus unless they remain totally isolated for the time that this is circulating, which is pretty much impossible.
0: When my wife and I were coming back from dinner on Friday night, there was a car in front of us that had the hatchback open and had um, hooked up um, uh, one of those um, cr- crawl signs with it, you know, the letter crawl. And it was uh, an anti-vaccination message telling parents, you know, you shouldn't get your kids vaccinated because government statistics show that thousands of kids have had have uh, died as a result of the COVID vaccine. It was full of misinformation, and but this person had gone to the extreme of actually driving that vehicle around areas where people were congregating for dinner on on a Friday night. And you know, it just it struck me, sort of what the what the what the psychology is behind that. Is it sort of. I'm in on the information that they're keeping from you, that they won't tell you the truth, and I'm gonna I'm gonna save your life by giving you the truth. I, I'm fascinated by sort of what is behind the dissemination of misinformation. Do you have any thoughts on that, Doctor Schreiner?
1: Well, I'm not a psychologist and um you know it it's baffling to me why you people don't wanna take a, a vaccine that will save their lives and save their children's lives and you know um you know there's just so much disinformation on the on social media and it's so hard for people to parse out what's true and what isn't and so I think that's part of the problem and you know they may be with other people that are fearful of vaccines or have other reasons that they don't want to participate in in medical care and stuff so i I don't know Larry, I think there's sort of an an ennui if you will too I just kind of a like people are just sick of it, and they want it to go away. And so if they say things like that, then that sort of justifies not getting vaccinated. And I would say to those people, you know what, if you're in a community where people don't like you to be vaccinated, go get vaccinated and don't tell anybody because it will save your life. And it will it just is just so ser- problematic when we have families where there's a lot of pressure not to do it. Uh, and then when their loved one comes into the hospital, and we have several of them there right now, the families are distraught, and they're angry. There's a lot of anger right now. People are really tired of this, and I don't blame them. I'm tired of it. But it's, it's, it is what it is, and we have to deal with it. And it's just hard to kind of keep everybody's fear factor elevated enough to do the right thing and protect themselves.
0: It, it just I, I scratch my head over over people citing statistical evidence for their false claims that just is so easily debunked. And, and it's like, did they bother to look at all or are they not motivated to, to look at the reality of what they're citing falsely as a statistic? It's just, it's so hard for me to understand. You, you sent a, a New York Times guest essay to me by Dr. Adam Grant, who's at Wharton. He's an organizational psychologist. And, um he does a, a TED podcast called Work Life. And it's a really interesting piece. It's titled We're Living Through the Boring Apocalypse. And it gets to that very issue that you were just mentioning about sort of the, the fatigue that we're now going through with this. And um, we've become desensitized now over time, which is human nature.
1: Yeah, it's a protective mechanism so that you don't, you know, you don't become hysterical every time you see it. He used the spider analogy. Um, for me, it would be snakes for sure, but um, yeah. uh, uh, but you know I think that it is it's it, what happens is you know that the part of your brain that is the sort of you know okay you 're afraid of this, you need to run or you need to you know really ramp up your your endorphins and everything and get away from this thing that begins to kind of attenuate the more times you're challenged with the same thing over and over and over again, and that 's kind of what 's happening with the pandemic is, oh, yeah, here we are, another lockdown. You know, yes, you got to wear your mask. Yes, you can, you've got to be careful about holidays. Yes, you can't have big gatherings, all the, the things that people want to do. And, you know, we're very, very social creatures. Our whole evolution was dependent on our socialness, right? And so I think that to take that away from people is such an enormously impactful thing on our species uh, and on our behavior that That's why people sort of look for this other information that they're, oh, they're not, the doctors are telling you misinformation. It isn't true. It isn't out there. COVID is a hoax. I mean, anybody who's lost someone or taken care of someone with COVID knows that's not true. And I think on some level people know that, but they want it to be something different. And they're just so tired of hearing all of us yammering about it that I think they just develop this kind of, okay, it is what it is. I don't care. I'm just going to go on and start all over again and do my life the way I did it before the pandemic. And then they get the disease.
0: We're talking with Dr. Kimberly Schreiner, Huntington Hospital in Pasadena. Marion and La Puente said, I understand that there are a lot of nurses and doctors refusing to be vaccinated. My question is, you know, is there a way to find out if my primary care doctor and whoever she refers me to is fully vaccinated? Is there a, a database available? I want to ensure I'm not exposing myself, uh, even though I myself am fully vaccinated.
1: Uh, there, well, that's per- personal health information. So it, certainly if one of your physicians uh, has admitting privileges to a hospital, hospitals uh, can have mandates for all of their medical staff to be fully vaccinated or, or to have either a, a very legitimate medical or religious exemption. Um, you know, you can always ask people. It's They can say no, but it's it's not information that's readily available and it's not on some sort of website. Again, the hospital, if this person was affiliated with Huntington, all of our medical staff have to be vaccinated. Um, And if they're working at the hospital, if they're not vaccinated for some reason, in which we think we only have one person, they have to be tested regularly. So um, so there isn't a place where you can look it up. You can certainly say to your physician, you know, I'm very much in favor of vaccines. I'm very concerned about my exposure to any individual. Um, Can you assure me that when I come into your office, I'll be safe? Uh, And that sort of takes the sting out of it. Are you personally?
0: Yeah. That's, that's good. That's very artful, Dr. Schreiner. That's your the way that you've talked with patients. That's very good, just reversing things, how to do doctor speak. That's good. I, I like that. 866-893-KPECC, or you can email us at comments at kpecc.org. Uh, Marion's a Kaiser patient also, and I, I think that Kaiser does. Don't they require that... Uh, that, well, I guess California requires it, doesn't it?
1: California requires it. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, but there are private practitioners who never have admitting privileges to hospitals and, and they may have their own clinic and they're not under any mandates from uh, from the state, particularly in that department. I mean, we certainly encourage all health care workers to get vaccinated, but there are some we have we have a few nurses that they're not vaccinated. So it's it's just scary. Not very many, but um, we're just trying to kind of they get tested. Regularly.
0: Yeah, I was going to say they have to be tested all the time, right? So Uh, Tom and Tustin said, I I recently visited with a friend who I consider to be very well informed but she's been resistant to getting vaccinated because she doesn't believe the accuracy of the data on it. So Tom wonders, well, how thorough is the government data on vaccine breakthrough cases, um, you know, uh, negative reactions to vaccination? And how might I be able to show her this data in a constructive way?
1: So these vaccines are very, very, very well studied. They're much more well studied than the tetanus vaccine because we're in the middle of a pandemic and there's hundreds of millions of cases of COVID. And there are hundreds of millions of people who've now been vaccinated. There's global data on WHO. There's national data on CDC. You can go to the Pfizer and uh, and Moderna websites and they will list all the data and the side effects, significant adverse events and the the incidence of those. Um, uh, There is just an abundance of data. It's an avalanche of data, if you will, to show how safe these are. These are probably the most well-studied vaccines we've ever made. Um, and because there, there's so many millions of people have taken them and are protected, and we can, you know, as we move through the pandemic, we can see that now it's probably going to be a three-part vaccine. I think many of us thought that's the way it was going to go anyway, and I think Omicron is showing us that that's what you're going to have to do. It's like the virus sort of tells us, okay, I'm going to try this little trick. Oops, now that's you need to have three shots to make sure that you're fully protected, and that's common in vaccines. A lot of vaccines do that, so... Uh, so there's just it's it's out there. It's on you know go to a reliable site. Go to CDC. Go to WHO. Uh, go to Pfizer and Moderna sites, and you will see all of the data there. And that's very transparent, well collected, well documented data. These vaccines are very, very, very safe.
0: I think where even you would probably admit there are holes in in data is um, contact tracing on COVID itself. That has not been what we were told was was going to be happening with widespread contact tracing that really has not happened, and also the the sort of, you know, more minor negative um, effects that people have had that have not required, say, hospitalization or left people with very serious side effects, um, that probably is left more to the anecdotal, isn't it?
1: A little bit. I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, these vaccines have, have a wallop. You know, they really do Um, kind of make you know that that's your immune system getting charged up but the virus uh, has a bigger wallop and um, you know this is a a very deadly virus and it's um, the days of kind of well you know I get sort of the flu it's definitely not influenza and it's its mortality is well known we've seen it we've experienced it many people have experienced it very very personally Uh, And it's it's a tragedy that you can prevent by getting people vaccinated. And, you know, every one of our unvaccinated folks that's that's at the hospital, we're taking very good care of them. We're trying to save their lives. Uh, But uh, one of our intensivists who's just been a heroine, just a courageously uh, important person uh, was the first took care of the first patient of COVID at Huntington. She finally she called me last week and just she I finally heard this fatigue and kind of exasperation in her voice because she had so many patients that were unvaccinated and they were dying, so it's just it's a terrible thing for the families. Yeah. And it's a terrible thing for the individual, and certainly very difficult for the healthcare workers.
0: Yeah, for healthcare professionals who care about their patients, and know that that this outcome could have been avoided. Uh, we have a couple of listeners who've asked uh, a similar question. I'll paraphrase it. It's essentially about Omicron seeming to affect more vaccinated than unvaccinated people. I assume, Doctor Schreiner, that's because the majority of people are vaccinated. So, just you're looking at sort of law of averages there. N- not that being unvaccinated would protect you against Omicron, because that wouldn't make sense.
1: No, I think this, I think you're absolutely right, Larry. It's mostly that we we have a lot of people that are vaccinated, and a lot of people that are vaccinated sort of I think feel I don't have to be as careful. I can I can take my mask off. I can be indoors and do things with. You know, people who say they're vaccinated, some of whom, most of whom hopefully are, some people don't respond to the vaccines. And so, uh, and this virus, this variant of the virus, the Omicron, seems to be very, very infectious. And so it can get passed from people who thought they were fully protected, um, but were not because they hadn't yet gotten a booster. We also know, however, that it has uh, infected people who have been boosted as well. So it's it's a tricky one. Um, it may not cause as severe disease, which could be good. Uh, especially for the long haul, but um, we just don't know yet. So uh, that's why it seems like it's more vaccinated than unvaccinated. Unvaccinated people are very vulnerable to this virus. They are also super vulnerable to Delta, and Delta is the beast here that's causing most of the significant disease in our country right now.
0: In in terms of pre, you know presenting at the ER at Huntington. Are most of the people, I'm not talking about those who end up hospitalized, but are most of the people coming in the door to the ER vaccinated because you're in a community that has a high vaccination rate?
1: Well, we certainly have a lot of people who come in for other reasons, obviously nothing that would suggest COVID. And we have some that come in, you know, that have a cough and some shortness of breath and they've been to a party someplace and they're sick enough to go to the ER and not be able to go to their doctor. And so those individuals often are vaccinated. Uh, So yes, we have a lot of people that that present to the ER if they're sick enough to go to the emergency room. We don't encourage people to use the ER as a testing site. That's a long wait. You're sitting in a waiting room, and we, you know, we're know, we a trauma center. We have very, very sick patients. So it's better to go to an urgent care if you just want to get tested. But if you're sick enough that you need to be seen by a health care worker, then you should come to the emergency room and we'll test you. But a lot of those folks are vaccinated because of the community that we live in.
0: Uh, James in Encino asks a question that many of our listeners have over the past several weeks. He said he got his first Two doses of Pfizer, so fully vaccinated with Pfizer. But for his booster, he's considering switching to Moderna, wondering if just mixing it up might give an additional level of protection beyond what he'd get with the third Pfizer shot. What do you think?
1: So that's a question we've all been asked, James, and I I don't think we really have any good data to say one way or the other. The bottom line is the booster is important, and I would stick with the mRNA vaccine since uh, he was vaccinated with Pfizer to begin with. Um, you know, whether you switch to Moderna, that's your choice. The Moderna booster is a 50% dose from the original Moderna dose. That's because uh, the Moderna vaccine has a little bit more spike, spike juice, if you will, uh, in it. Um, and um, uh, But they're both probably equivalent. And as long as you get a booster, that really helps kind of lock in that immunity uh, and get you through what appears to be a little, um, out- well, little outbreak, a significant outbreak with a new variant.
0: All right. Uh, Let's see. We have, um, this is from Melissa in Fountain Valley. Should we be concerned or relieved that so many people seem to be out there living their best lives, going to clubs, concerts, sporting events, Disneyland, and case numbers still seem relatively under control?
1: That's a great question, Melissa. I I think that we we can take some comfort in that. Uh, That means that we do have a lot of people that are being... That are vaccinated, and when you think about it, you know the kids are in school, people are attending large events. We still see cases, and we still have lots of potential for superspreader events, Uh, and we still have to be cautious. Uh, And you know, I think the really important thing to remember is it's not just about you yourself. If you get the Omicron variant, you may not get that sick with it because perhaps you've been vaccinated and boosted. But if you give it to someone who is immunocompromised or who is elderly or who hasn't responded well to the vaccine or who's unvaccinated, you could cause them great harm and even death. And so this isn't really about us as individuals. This is about all of us as the community, that when you get vaccinated, not doing it just for yourself, you're doing it for your family, you're doing it for your colleagues, and you're doing it for your community. And that goes as well with good behavior in terms of wearing a mask when you're indoors, trying to avoid large venues where you're exposed to people that might not be vaccinated. Um, And it's hard. We're in the middle of the holidays. It's really tough. Uh, But we've got to learn to live with this, and that's how we're doing it. We just have to be careful and take, take some risks, but also be very, very vigilant.
0: John in Fullerton emailed us, I just read about a new um, preventive for immunosuppressed individuals called Evusheld from AstraZeneca, given emergency use authorization from the FDA. It's a cocktail um, that uh, is injectable, antibody cocktail. Uh, Dr. Schreiner, is is that something that uh, you've used at Huntington, do you know?
1: Uh, We're going to get it. It's a game changer, I think, for our very high-risk immunocompromised people, people with leukemia, uh, people with multiple myeloma, other immunosuppressed people, transplant patients. It's a, it's a cocktail of monoclonal antibodies. It's given as an intramuscular injection, so you don't have to do an infusion. It could be done in a doctor's office, although I think uh, we're going to have it at the hospital. We don't give it for people who um, have already had COVID, although unless they're very high risk for acquiring it in the next few days. But it's kind of a game changer. It's better than the Regeneron monoclonal antibody infusion thing that's sort of more cumbersome. And again, what you're going to see, Larry, as we move through the pandemic, you're going to see more novel ways of delivering antivirals and neutralizing antibodies. This kind of stuff that happens is the great benefit of all of this, is that our science and our understanding of how to use these tools grows exponentially. And so that's something good that's coming out of this, but it is uh, I think that Edgeshield is going to be a very important tool for immunocompromised patients.
0: Christina in Burbank says I was recently told by a nurse a new definition had to be created for mRNA vaccines because they alter their your DNA. Wow, a nurse told you that, and the ten thousand people died when they were doing studies on them. Again, it's similar to that, that false statistic uh, that was that was cited uh, by the person with the sign on their car. Uh, so, Christina wants to know, you know, what what's the truth of this that this nurse told me.
1: That's not true information. Uh, These are mRNA vaccines. They do not get into your DNA. They do not get into your DNA. Uh, They stay outside of the nucleus where the DNA is kept in your cells. Uh, All they are is just a little recipe for the the spike protein. So that's never introduced into anything human uh, other than the human body where it's going to stimulate your immune system to protect you against this virus. Uh, So it does not cause any kind of DNA mutations. Um, We have not seen very many deaths directly associated to the, virus, to, the, excuse me, to the vaccines. There were a few very, very rare events associated with the adenovirus vector vaccines, such as AstraZeneca and J&J. Pfizer and Moderna have been incredibly safe vaccines, incredibly safe. I mean, the millions, if not billions of people now who have been vaccinated with these vaccines, um, it's not showing to be um, a dangerous endeavor, and it's highly protective.
0: Dr. Schreiner, it's always a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much, and I guess we'll still be um, having you debunk things in the weeks to come. This does not go away, so thank you for doing this. So important for our listeners. We really appreciate it.
1: It's hard work, Larry, and I understand everybody's, you know, this is the holidays. We have some lovely Christmas weather here. Hopefully people won't have problems with flooding, but it's very, very important just to try to follow the truth.
0: Yeah. And I and I appreciate our listeners asking, hear things and ask about it. And that's that's good. I'm I'm really I'm really glad that people feel okay about asking these questions and getting straight answers. Doctor Kimberly Schreiner, Director of Infectious Disease and Prevention at Huntington Hospital in Pasadena. Thanks for listening to this episode of COVID in L.A. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news, you can listen anytime at las.com at KPCC.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. See you next time and stay safe. I'm Larry Mantle.